Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos and the PCC Multiverse. Check out more great podcasts today on one of these awesome affiliate networks. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The Tangibound Network. Check it out. Tangiboundnetwork.com. Listen to this show, the latest episode, every time. A proud member of the Gunna Geek Network. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1. On this week's episode, we're asking if it will take The Rock to break the video game movie curse. We share our thoughts on the NBA playoffs. We talk to Hope's Fall. And did Guardians of the Galaxy suffer from sequelitis? All this and more as we reach our next stop, the PCC Multiverse. Don't be alarmed. The quasi-shimmering light before you is a trans-dimensional gateway to other worlds, other voices, other thoughts, and other realities. Up feels like down, and down feels like the number seven on a Wednesday morning. Don't worry. That quivering, blood-boiling sensation under your eyebrows is all a part of the charm. Welcome to the PCC Multiverse. And we're back once again with the PCC Multiverse. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. We truly want to thank you for tuning in to our show each and every week. It wouldn't be a PCC Multiverse without the main man from Humanica Media, and he's also the best fellow host, because I don't want to say co-host, because I don't know that kind of puts it to the side there. A show could have, it's Josh Peterson. What's going on, my friend? What up, what up, what up? Hey, I appreciate that equality. Podcasting host quality. Well done. Well, thank you. And I just want to make sure and let everyone out there know that he is going to have a great interview coming up later in the program with the drummer from the returning from what a 10-year hiatus, if I'm not mistaken, the great band Hope's Fall. Last album was 2007. So yeah, 10 years. All right. Well, they're back in action. They're back out performing. They're back out making records. And Josh got a chance to talk to the drummer of Hope's Fall. And that's coming up later in the program. We also have as well, Rob McCallum standing by in the good old Cosmic Crossfire. He's going to talk about his thoughts about Apple, Netflix, Spotify, and a lot more there. Plus, Anthony Barberin, our man in the know when it comes to the NBA. He's going to break down the NBA playoffs. And Josh and I are going to be talking at the end of the show about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and why it might suffer from sequelitis. We're going to have such a packed episode. But first, It's another great weekend at the box office. A Quiet Place is still going to be going strong in its second week. We talked about it in our previous show with our review at the Pop Culture Cosmos show. So if you get a chance, check out our thoughts on A Quiet Place. We think it's going to hold up pretty strong. It's going to do probably around $28 to $35 million this weekend at the domestic box office here in the U.S. But there is a movie out there which could 
or may not break that video game movie curse. And that is Rampage, that old classic arcade game, which I was around for when it first came out. Yes, I am that old. But those creatures are coming to life in a manner of speaking on the big screen, along with The Rock. And we talk about last week, John Cena and The Rock, as far as if John Cena can compare at some point in time to The Rock's value as a box office star. We're not sure if that's going to happen down the road, but this is going to be a big test for The Rock. And I say this, Josh, because the reviews are not exactly the most stellar out there. It is under 50% on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. It is not garnering that great of support out there among social media and reviews. It still might capture the first spot on the domestic list. Plus, also, it could still see some life out there in the international box office as well. Your thoughts on Rampage and if it will actually break the video game movie curse and help solidify The Rock as the box office movie champion. This uh, this was kind of a weird one. When they first made this movie, I was not expecting it. Rampage is one of those games. They were fun when I was a kid, you know, playing on Sega Genesis, but I did not really care that much for like, it's not one of those things where I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool if they made a movie out of it. And, you know, like I was telling you the other day, the game kind of revolved around the fact that you were getting points for wrecking buildings and doing things like that. Whereas, you know, you have in this one, you're not so much focusing on the carnage as much as you're focusing on the rock teaming up with his buddy, his uh, eight buddy to take down like a, a giant wolf and stuff like that. So, you know, just from what I've seen in the trailers, it looks like they really are on a stretch with the story. And it's not like something that seems I, I know with something like that, it's not going to seem plausible like in any way, but it doesn't really seem like they try to sell it as being plausible. It's just they're writing a couple lines of dialogue like, oh, genetic engineering, we're going to throw this cube into a forest and these things are going to grow so big. It's going to be so cool. Like that just doesn't really appeal to me. And then it, it's kind of like if they made a movie out of burnout, you know, you get points for creating destruction. You know, and that's what makes the game fun. You want to hit as many cars as possible, but if they added a narrative to it, it wouldn't be half the fun that it was. So I'm not too excited about this. And even like putting somebody like The Rock in that movie is not going to make it good, I don't think. People will go see it, it it'll make some money, but Jumanji was, they announced yesterday, was like Sony's highest grossing movie passing Spider Man. It's not going to be another Jumanji if that's what they're thinking is going to happen. Well, even if it gets to half of Jumanji, that would be a big win for it and actually would put it as the highest grossing video game movie of all time. Whether it gets there, I seriously doubt it. I don't even think The Rock is going to have enough Teflon to fend off against the reviews from both a standpoint of the critics and also word of mouth about how disappointing this movie could be. It just, at this point, does not look like something that's going to be palatable for a lot of movie audiences out there. It might garner a strong first week based off of The Rock's name only. But then again, Baywatch did the same, and it almost kind of almost got near a profit after the worldwide take came in. I just want to ask you a quick question. Even if the movie does make money, I don't think that it's going to break the so-called video game to film adaptation curse. 
what what are your thoughts just because a movie makes a lot of money does that necessarily mean that it's well liked by people or you think it's just people going into seeing it not really knowing what to expect out of it True, and there's a has been video game movies that have turned a profit because of either it's the the budget was low enough and they were able to succeed it. So yes, it doesn't definitively make a movie breaking that video game curse. Obviously, it should be a be all end all as far as not only is it a very good movie to watch, but also should be able to be a success at the box office. From all appearances, it looks like at least one end on a critical nature, it's not going to be even close to being that. And again, for a second nature, it might not end up being that as well. So we'll have to wait and see. I agree with you that this will not break the video game movie curse. I think we'll still be waiting. I think this just, again, it goes back to all those expectations I think they have in Hollywood and the film industry and still not understanding what can make a good video game adaptation. I still don't think they have a grasp of it. Maybe if Uncharted or some other movie like God of War, which we will see coming up here in a few days, The Last of Us, or any of the movies that are reported to be in production that are video game adaptations. I just don't think Hollywood yet has a grasp of exactly how to define and how to actually even produce a quality film from a video game adaptation as of yet. They try so hard to make sure all the ingredients of the video game are in there that they really forget what made that video game so good in the first place. And as of yet, we have not seen a video game adaptation come onto the big screen being something that for audiences can be truly translated into a full success from either a box office or a critical standpoint. No, I agree. I don't always necessarily agree with the way the critics bash the video game to film adaptations because they go in wanting to bash them because that's what's going to get people to read their reviews. And I get that. But at the same time, I think that people who make these video game to film adaptations are under the impression that they can get away with a lot of things that they shouldn't be able to because it is a video game to film adaptation. But Here's the thing, like people are smart and, you know, there's that old acronym of KISS, keep it simple, stupid, when it comes to filmmaking, people don't necessarily fall for that. You know, I think there's a lot of assuming going on that people need something that just is going to help them escape. But like you forget, we're in this era of social media, so everybody's going to look at everything very critically. So whether or not it's a complex or deep movie people are going to want to see more than just buildings exploding and someone saying oh this magic box did this to these animals they'll totally uh, be okay with that so they it's it's not that simple but i'm curious to see what their reviews end up being i'll watch it when it comes out i won't necessarily go to the movie theaters to see it but it's just not something that i'm really that interested in neither am i and after a first weekend i don't think many people will either What are your thoughts on Rampage? Do you think The Rock has enough box office clout to make it a success with audiences? Or do you think it's going to be a, well, like one of the buildings in the video game that it will eventually crash and burn? That was good. That was a good metaphor. I like that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I aim to please. Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also as well, popculturecosmos, Humanica Media, and GameSource on Facebook and Twitter as well. Again, it's going to be a great episode. First, I want to make sure and let everyone know out there that our shows are being streamed seven days a week on online radio stations 
and that we deliver two brand new shows covering the latest in pop culture every Monday and Friday to Apple Podcasts or our over 30 different podcast networks. Just subscribe to any one of them on the Pop Culture Cosmos channel to get extra content or just check out the Pop Culture Cosmos Facebook page for our entire radio schedule and a list of those podcast networks. Josh, I know you've got a great thing going on with your experience known as Humanica Media. So share with us, Josh, what's the latest and greatest with Humanica Media? I got to sit down and chat with Adam Morgan of Hope's Fall, a little post-hardcore band you uh, may or may not heard of. But Loudwire did vote them as one of the most influential bands on the genre. So that was a good time. That'll be up here soon. There's a new episode of the Super BS Games cast dropping, which also features another interview I did with Janemann Nordhagen of Dimbulb Games. And we're talking about where the water tastes like wine. And then there's two brand new episodes of Inside Sports now available to download, which feature Charles Smith and his buddy who plays hockey talking about their predictions for the NHL playoffs. So you can check that out, too. And also be sure to check us out on the podcast radio network every Tuesday at seven o'clock. Did I get it right this time? Yes, you did. That is 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Podcast Radio Network, where you can find our shows as well, the Pop Culture Cosmos on Monday and the PCC Multiverse on Friday as well. It's going to be a great show that we have for you. But first, this is Hyperschmidt, and along with Might, they collaborated together for a great song. This is Collide, and this is the PCC Multiverse. Love, you know, you see Can I make you number one? I know, we're young Broken hearts are half the fun Lungs, please, be free It's so tragic, I can't breathe
You're listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos. Get ready for Kitty Origins Evolutions, the latest documentary from Rob McCallum. Generously peppered with archival footage shot by the band, this film gives you an honest and brutal look at what it takes to survive in the music industry. Order the DVD, Blu-ray, and live CD triple pack that features recordings from throughout their 20-year illustrious history from RobMcCallumFilms.com. RobMcCallumFilms.com, your place for awesome stories about awesome people and films worth watching. And it is time once again for the Cosmic Crossfire. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. We thank you so much for listening to the show today. It would definitely not be a Cosmic Crossfire without my good friend. He is the man, the myth, the legend behind RobMcCallumFilms.com. You got to check out all the great things going at Rob McCallum Films. And here he is now, Rob McCallum. So pray tell, Rob. What's on your mind when it comes to pop culture? Next on the docket is another question about Apple. And they're coming under fire more and more about nothing really like like they did anything wrong, but there's a lot of industry curiosities. And a lot of people are wondering what Apple's going to do in the content space. Are they going to sit back and slowly develop their own material as they have been? Or are they going to push forward and actually acquire a studio and really signify that they're here as a content player for their own streaming kind of creation or originals. They've committed to spending a billion dollars in original program compared to Netflix. That's a lot less considering Netflix is spending $8 billion. And so a lot of industry people are saying, oh, no, they should buy an A24 or they should buy Lionsgate just to speed things up to get them up to speed maybe to cut corners maybe to just get that material out there quicker and a lot of other people saying they don't need to do any of that apple's great at building their own thing they built itunes on their own they figured out those licenses the last time uh, apple did a a big acquisition it was three three billion dollar acquisition of beats and i don't know that that was a real game changer for them other than basically giving them you know a luxury headphone device that they could offer when somebody buys a, an iphone you know i don't think it really changed the market too much as it, as it just gave them a, another outlet for some technology that they can probably use another way so i don't know that buying a studio is really the way to go and the only kind of reason to buy a studio is to get their back catalog and while lionsgate has some nice titles in their catalog i don't know that a24 really has the breadth that uh, some of these other companies have now it's reported that they have $285 billion in cash on hand, let alone if they choose to liquidate some other assets. So $285 billion can buy a lot. It could have bought Fox for the reported price tag of $160 billion. It could maybe buy Disney if it really wanted to. So why would you go after a small pony when you could go after something else? Now, along the same lines, over I think a year ago, I want to say 15 months ago, it was rumored that Apple was going to buy Netflix so that they could have a streaming service alongside iTunes so they can have basically their stream site and then their buying site. At the time, Netflix was re- reportedly worth $40 billion, And of course, it's only gone up since then. And now it's reported to be worth about $124 billion. So they still have the money that they could spend on it and still have half left over in their coffers to spend on the original programming that Netflix is already committed to. And then some, 
But what is the big end game here for Apple? And so for them to buy a studio, I don't know that they need to buy a studio to be a player. What do you, what do you think in this whole scope of Apple's decisions to dip their toes in content? And is a decision and is some action really becoming necessary of them? Or can they just sit in the background and do what they do? Well, of course they can sit in the background, but is it the wisest decision to do so? I think that you hit it right on the head, my friend, when you talked about that Beats, they acquired Beats, and it really hasn't done much to change their outlook. I understand maybe they were trying to reach uh, you know, a different age group, demographic, what have you, and, and, and a marketplace that they maybe weren't reaching as far as that they would have liked. Uh, and it really hasn't transcended into that. And I think the best things that Apple does is done organically. And this would, to me, would be no different. And I agree with you. I think they should go ahead and build from the ground up and they should become, you know, maybe a larger player in it. And hopefully this is the baby steps. Hopefully this is the first walkthrough into something larger. I'm hoping that it will be able to be an alternative that people can go to a viable one at that because you know you know as someone who is a Netflix customer and sees all that money being spent you know actually Tyler Baker was on the other day talking about some of the stuff that was just on there and it's just so immeasurable how much is actually produced for Netflix at this point in time well that leads into a bigger question Netflix does not have the financial power and weight that Apple does how long can they continue to spend this type of money and actually get that kind of return? Because as a whole, we're not even sure if Netflix turns an actual profit. When I think about Netflix and profit and the economics of it all, I start to think about things like MoviePass. And I start to think about things like free-to-play games. And I start to think about things like Facebook. At some point, something has got to give. Now, Netflix raised their prices a few months ago to their legacy subscribers, the people that had been with them for about six years by a dollar or two. And of course, with the number of subscribers, they have that instantly raised like $200, $300 million per month going forward, which is which is really great. And you you know, multiply that out, that covers you know a quarter of their new original programming budget that they're going to do. Sometimes you don't need to have the economics behind you to have value. Facebook was losing money for a very long time. MoviePass continues to bleed and lose money. They were most recently offering MoviePass for $7. $7 to see a single movie a day for for the month. 7 bucks. How do you not do that? Gerald, tell me you've signed up for MoviePass. I am seriously thinking about it this time. Seven dollars for your whole family. You're in for thirty bucks. That's it. But there's also got to remember is where you can go and see it. There's still certain little contingencies. Okay, but even if you choose to go see Infinity War and buy those tickets, you're still going to be able to get your thirty dollars back on just one other trip to the movies. I know it's 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 out there. It's seven dollars. It's so attractive, and I know Josh and I have talked about this on and off camera as well. So it's. Very, very enticing. And you're right. You don't know how they can sustain a business model of that type. So like, it goes to show, though, like you can be a major player and not really have anything behind you for better or worse. At some point, the margin call is going to come. The bell is going to ring and you don't want to create a Great Depression again. But as long as somebody believes in what you're doing, you're going to have venture capitalists out there that, that keep you floating. And Netflix has the brand awareness and the brand power to do that right now. 
I say that, and then I look at other companies like MySpace, and we see what what's kind of happened to that. And we've even seen bigger companies like eBay take a dive against stuff like Amazon that's popped up, right? eBay is not what it once was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Amazon has quickly replaced that. Even Walmart, a huge brand that globally is starting to take a massive dive because of other companies like Amazon, namely, and you know, rightfully so. So nothing is sacred, but when you have brand and you have a following and you have a presence, that is always going to have value even if you don't have anything in the bank. Well, we talk about, uh, you know, all the social media as far as Spotify, that's doing an IPO as we speak as far as it's concerned. And people are talking about it going between $150, $250 a share, but they're not really sure exactly how to gauge it because it is one of the more profitable brands of its type out there, but we're not really sure for the long term exactly what their plans are and how they're going to be able to execute them in kind of a digital radio space. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's an ever-growing kind of landscape because for the longest time, podcasts are nothing. They're not real radio. And then you had all celebrities kind of come in and start to do podcasts, and they took away listening numbers from you know, the FM stations and the XM radio and, and Sirius FM. And then they merged, of course, because they couldn't compete. So now you have basically Spotify trying to take a piece of that pie too. And what is their role going to be? And then you have stuff like Apple Music as well that is going to try to take a, another piece of that pie. And they're doing their own radio stations via Apple Music and their own artist playlists. And as, as many new players as there are, there's the pie is only so big. That pie really doesn't grow that much. And I tell people this, you know, people want to do a documentary on this topic or this topic, video games, for example, a lot of people want to do different ideas, or this would be great to do a documentary on the Castlevania series or or Metal Gear, because it's been around for a long time. And I tell them like, yeah, that's great. But there's so many documentaries out there for you to find success, you better not only execute well, that's like has to be a given, but you must find such a compelling way to talk about that, that it truly stands out and becomes much bigger than what you're talking about. It has to be bigger than the subject matter. The subject matter almost has to disappear as people are watching and they have to see the meta story that's going on. Like we talked about Kitty, right? This is about what it's like to get the ultimate dream as a teenager and become a rock star. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Here's the thing. It, it happened to these four women. This is what they went on. So you can kind of live vicariously through them. That is the big thing. What happens when, you know, careful what you wish for, because you could be in for the ride of your life. That's the kind of overall meta question that happens. And it becomes bigger than any of, of the stakes. So if you're going to do something on Castlevania, you better have a really good thematic kind of through line that rises above video games that were released that people like. This is true. Otherwise, it's just going to fall into a bunch of uh, other like video game documentaries or any other documentaries that but that matter, you know, nature documentaries. You can't just have the same type of nature documentary that everyone else has had. What new thing are you going to bring to the table? I think it's probably the best example I can make out of that. And like with your kitty documentary, what is new about the kitty documentary that is going to appeal to a broader audience? Well, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of things. A lot of a lot of the times people just want to focus on the history, not the overall stakes or the emotional through line about what happens as you go through it. And those bigger questions like, imagine we did get to do this. Well, we did. 
and here's the the story and did we come out better for it didn't we come out better for it what's the future of this you know is there an end what is the the scope of the industry as a result 20 years later so those are some of those bigger questions and so when we when we think about spotify trying to come into that space or we think about apple trying to come in to the to the studio space or the content creation space it's what are they trying to do as a studio on a bigger level are they just making new shows because they can afford to or are they trying to do something with those shows? When you think of like Amblin Entertainment, Spielberg's company, of course, there's a vibe and there's a, a thematic push for all his stuff. He wants to do these kind of films. I don't know that Apple has really thought about their kind of content that they want to do yet. And I think what Netflix started to do that stuff, they're trying to cater to so many people so quickly that they don't have a thematic brand presence. It's just on demand now. All right. Well, that'll do it for the Cosmic Crossfire. If you have a question for Rob about the show itself, maybe about a topic or about his great projects, including the Kitty documentary, Origins and Evolutions, Missing Mom, Nintendo Quest, or the upcoming Kickstarter project on April 24th, just give him a shout out. What could it be? What could it what be? Could it be? What could it be? April 24th. Tune in and find out. That's right. Or you can of course, listen, listen here. And you'll hear more tidbits as we go. This is the exclusive source of information for said secret project. And there'll be lots of stuff in the works. But if you have questions, send it to us here at popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Or you can shoot any of us a DM right here at popculturecosmos, Humanity Media, Game Source, or Rob McCallum Films on Facebook or Twitter. But Rob is a little different on Twitter. It's at Rob McZob. Rob, it's been great having you on the show part of the cosmic crossfire and of course a part of the pop culture cosmos for the latest reviews and opinions on everything pop culture head on over to our brand new site www.popculturecosmos.wordpress.com and we're back we need to talk about what's going on with the nba playoffs and who better to break it down with me then my good friend, he is our NBA man in the know. It's Anthony Barberin. How's it going, my friend? It's going well. We're here to break down all the stuff that's going on in the NBA. It is the postseason, and it has arrived with a vengeance. So much excitement up ahead. We're going to break it down right now with the Western Conference real quick. We've got Houston versus Minnesota, Golden State versus San Antonio, Portland versus New Orleans, Oklahoma City, and Utah. These are eight outstanding teams, any one of which can go a long way in the playoffs. I'm going to start off with my picks. I'm going to go with Houston, Golden State. Let's go with Portland, and then Utah. I'm going to go with those four teams matching up with each other, leading into a Golden State versus Houston matchup, and Golden State coming out of the West. Who are your picks to come out of the Western Conference? And not only in the first rounds, but who will be your pick to come out as a whole in the Western Conference? Like you said, I, I have uh, Houston over Minnesota. I have the Warriors. I have the Blazers. And I'm going to go with Oklahoma City beating Utah. I think the Warriors and the Rockets will meet up in the Western Conference Finals. However, I, I got the Warriors coming out. I think by then Steph will be back. They'll be healthy. I think the Rockets have a bit of a harder role, so they'll be a little more warm. We'll see the Warriors representing the Western Conference. When it comes down to it, no matter how good a season the Rockets have had, the Warriors, when all four of the magical players are there for them, 
They are just so tough to beat. And it's even in the Western Conference, I think the finals, a lot of people will think the NBA finals will actually be the Western Conference finals matchup, which most likely will be the Houston Rockets for the Golden State Warriors. But those are some great picks indeed. A little bit of variance for mine, but again, it all leads into Houston versus Golden State. Those two teams seem to be well above and beyond as far as the Western Conference is concerned, even though it is loaded. The Eastern Conference has got a lot of solid teams as well. A lot of teams with some promise and a lot of teams that that are still overcoming some injury woes as well. We've got Toronto matching up against Washington, Philadelphia versus Miami, Boston matching up against Milwaukee, Cleveland versus Indiana. And I'll tell you right now, I think there's some good matchups there. I've got Toronto, Boston, Philadelphia, and Cleveland coming out of that first-round matchups, heading into a Cleveland and Philadelphia. If Joel Embiid comes back, comes back strong, that will be your Eastern Conference Finals matchup. And I do think Cleveland will head back to the NBA Finals once again as, you know, an up-and-down season, it looks like LeBron will get back to the Finals, in my opinion. Who do you think is going to come out in the East? Is Toronto that strong of a team? And do you think they're going to go ahead a long way in the Eastern Conference playoffs? I like Toronto. I think Toronto is set up to go deep and and, and be well. But I, I still like you. I have Cleveland coming out. They have the best player in the world. They have two legitimate all-star players who have championship experience. And I just think when it comes to the playoffs, they're going to ratchet it up just enough. And then they'll get back to the NBA championship and represent the Eastern Conference. Um, but and Kyrie I, I, Irving I, being hurt for Boston doesn't hurt either. No, it doesn't hurt. I didn't think they had enough to beat them even with him, not in a playoff setting, but it, it really hurts them. I am looking forward to that first round series between them and Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee, in all honesty, should be able to beat them. But I think the Brad Stevens factor is such a huge advantage for them that it won't probably be that close. I think six games at the most. So you have Toronto, Cleveland, Boston, and who else as far as the Philadelphia series? Who do you think is going to go out of between Philadelphia and Miami and meet up in as far as in the next round? I have the Sixers. I think if Deion Waiters was still around, it'd be a little closer. Um, I like him as a closer for that team, but the way Philadelphia is rolling right now, I think they're going into the playoffs with monumental momentum, and that's going to help carry them past, at least in the first round, past their inexperience. So who leads up as far as the Eastern Conference final is concerned? It looks like to me it'll be the Sixers and the Cavs, especially if Joel Embiid comes back. Yeah, it'll be the Sixers and the Cavs. He'll be so excited when he comes back. He'll have so much energy, and I think he'll give a lift to the Sixers. If they get by Miami, they will pose a problem for any other team out there. I think they won't have enough experience to surpass the Cleveland Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals, but I do think they'll give them a great test. Well, I think for both of us, it comes down to Golden State versus Cleveland. Wow, what a shock. I've never (laughs) seen that matchup before in the NBA Finals, but it looks like it's going to be another great matchup again after such a turbulent season for LeBron. He is now here with a better supporting cast than what he started out the season with, going against hopefully around that time, a healthy quartet of the Golden State Warriors. I still think when it comes all down to it, you have four all-stars going up against two all-stars, if you include Kevin Love as well. 
I think that's just still too much, no matter how good the sporting cast is for Cleveland. And I, I think in this time, again, it will be another easy walkaway series for the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I agree. Barring any of their big three being out. Honestly, as long as Steph is there and most of their players are healthy, I think Cleveland will have a very hard time beating them in a seven-game series. I think Golden State will end up winning another championship. I will say this. If Steph is not back healthy and ready before they meet Houston, I think Houston will ultimately be the ones in the finals. But if Golden State is fully healthy, I think they end up with the whole thing. I agree with you on that. Once again, it is some great talk from the NBA with her good friend, Anthony Barberin. If you want to reach out to Anthony and ask him questions on the NBA scene, just give us a shout out. Pop Culture Cosmos, Humanica Media, Game Source, or Inside Sports on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be sure to get him that message, and he'll be glad to answer it for you as well. Again, I'll tell you what, it's been great talking to you, my friend. He had great picks as far as who's going to head out and be the best of the bunch in the NBA playoffs. Anthony, once again, it is great to have you on the show. As always, thanks for having me. It's always a joy to come on, and I look forward to coming on next time. You got it, my friend. Always great to have you a part of the Pop Culture Cosmos. Stay tuned, because right after the break, it's a taste of Josh's interview with Adam Morgan of Hope's Fall. This is the PCC Multiverse. Brink here from Super BS, talking about the things you know you love and the things you'd love to know. Join us weekly for a podcast about video games. Mostly. Oh, yeah. That's the Super BS Gamescast, available today on YouTube and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome back. I am your host, Josh Peterson, and I'm joined here by my brother, Justin Peterson. What's up? As well as Daniel Nice Guy. Hey, how you doing? And we have a very special guest on the line today. We have Adam Morgan from Hope's Fall. How you doing, Adam? Good, guys. How are y'all? Good, 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 good. Yeah, just hanging out here. You're on the complete other side of the country than us. We're out here in California. He's from the future. Well, That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, you know, obviously you have, you guys, Hope's Fall has a new album coming out. It's been a little over 10 years since the release of Magnetic North. I know since then, uh, like Jay did some stuff with Night It's Expire, and he was working on something called Sunflowers of Mayhem, and then you were part of a brief reunion tour with Doug, but... Other than that, what have you guys all been up to? I guess most of us, or all of us, are just kind of doing the uh, the career thing and the family thing and just getting together when we can and um, and playing. And we've been writing this record for a, a really long time, it feels like. So, yeah, that's about it. I mean, I think everybody everybody's married now. I think I'm the only one with kids or a kid. So that takes up quite a bit of time between work and and just being a dad, but everybody's doing well, and we just try to get together when we can. Is it tough trying to balance, uh, like, making music with, with the family life and all that? Yeah, it is, but luckily, you know, I've got a wife, and we, we've all got wives that are very supportive of what we're doing, and uh, they make it a lot less painful to be able to do what we're doing, so. <laughs> right. Well, I guess the big question here, how's, how's it feel to be back making music again? Oh, man, it's great, especially for me, because I've been removed since the Satellite Years record, which was, what, God, 2002, 2000, 
Yeah, 2002, yeah. Yeah, so uh, going on 16 years. I mean, just to be able to get in the studio last year and, and, and do this record with, you know, my best friends and to finally, you know, yesterday was the day that we were able to debut a song for everybody to hear. It was just, it was super exciting and it just kind of, it just kind of all came to a head and was just, just really incredible to see the response so far. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah. That was actually, I wanted to ask you, how has the the feedback been on the song? It has been incredible in my opinion. I think a lot of us were just kind of bracing ourselves for, there might be some hate, you know, Uh, you see a lot of bands doing this comeback thing and, you know, even even me as a fan of other bands doing comebacks and, and stuff, I, a lot of times you're actually let down because there's um, a lot of expectation. There's a lot of ideas about how you think that band should sound. And it's it's rare that 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 band meets your expectations with coming up with new material. So we were just kind of prepared that, you know, we knew some fans would would be with us and they would enjoy it. And, you know, we just kind of thought it would be split, maybe 50-50. But honestly, the the response that we've seen is just kind of blown us away. And we couldn't be more thankful. So it's been really good. Good, good. That's, that's I've awesome. got to be honest, since it was sent to me yesterday, my, I've listened to it at least seven or eight times now. Um, so, oh, wow. So, yeah, so far the best, the best comeback song I've heard. At, oh, at man, time, yeah. thank you so much, dude. Thank you. Yeah, I think from some of the things I've read, I think one of the most encouraging things is that um, a lot of people have, have kind of said that the Hope's Fall sound is still there and it's still like right on. And that's really important to me. I've always kind of thought we've had a sound that was our own or identifiable that you could hear that and say that still has the same vibe, you know, whether we're screaming or we're singing or there's, there's always been an aspect to the music that I thought a lot of the fans could identify with and that they could hear it and they could say, yep, that sounds like their sound. And a lot of people are, are still saying that that's the case with this new single that we just put out. So that makes me extremely happy. Was that a big deal to you guys to keep the same sound and not change it up and like reinvent the wheel? I guess it was and it wasn't because it wasn't something we consciously tried to write. It's just this when we all get together and we write, it's what comes out without even an attempt to kind of try to, oh, guys, we're steering off the path of our sound. We better get back on. It's never like that. It's just it is what comes out. And so it's just kind of effortless as far as that goes. Yeah, it's weird with your guys' music. I always, people always like say, what would you classify the genre as? And I'm like, you just got to listen to it and kind of feel it because it's not – I don't know how to classify it. You guys kind of go across like the – Obviously, uh, overall, it'd be more like post-hardcore, but you guys kind of span different types in that genre of music, and it's really cool to hear. All right, yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, definitely post-hardcore, I guess, is the genre, you, I guess, you know, if we have to label it. I don't want to sit here like every band member that's ever existed in the world saying, we're doing something so different, you can't really classify <laughs> I mean, We're not, you know, we're not, and it's just... It's post-hardcore, I suppose, and it's got a little bit of atmosphere spacey elements to it. It's got 
a tinge of, you know, a darker side and it's got melodic parts, you know, and it's just what sounds good to us. And it's why we play it. And it's what comes out when we all get together. So hey, well, you're doing you're great, doing man. Good, Love man. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So back when the breakup was announced in 2008, it sounded like everybody in the band was sort of worn out to say between the stuff going on with the trust kill records and alleged drama behind the scenes and seemingly always altering lineup. How did the band, like in its current form, I guess, decide to come back together? That's a good question. Luckily, I wasn't around for the disbanding, but that, you know, those guys certainly were getting wore out and the label definitely, you know, Truskill definitely had, they kind of just boiled over the pot that made the rest of the guys decide, you know what, this is it. I know a lot of that had to come from cutting a song off the Magnetic North record without their consent and some other stuff that I heard. But I really don't want to get into that because it didn't really quite happen to me. So I'm not going to speak too much on that behalf. Right. But yeah, for right, sure. Right, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think after doing it for so long, the guys just kind of wanted it was just time to get on with life. People had started developing long term relationships that we're time to go to that next level, you know, marriage. And then a couple of guys started getting really good jobs and career paths that they wanted to pursue. And it, you know, it was just time to put your roots down and start growing up a little bit and getting on with that aspect of life. We'd been chasing the dream for a while and we were young and it was a good time to do that. And it was just time to move on. So those guys got married, they started their jobs. And then after a few years and time went by We've, we've always remained friends and we've always, you know, except for Jay living in Chicago, the rest of us have always resided here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we'd hang out all the time. Three of the guys worked at a local craft brewery together. So we were just always hanging out at the brewery and then oh, we nice. decided to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we stay hydrated at practice. For yeah, sure. right. <laughs> That's a good way of putting but, it. Yeah. Um, Josh, Dustin, and I started a bowling league a few years ago, and we were bowling, and then we were talking. We were like, you know, why don't we get together and just jam? Or pull? I hate that. Why did I just say jam? We, <laughs> because you know, everyone understands. And, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, why don't we get together and just play? You know, I still got my amp, and you still got your drums. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. Dustin has some idea for some songs. Josh had some ideas. And we just started practicing once a week. We'd go bowl, and then we'd go drink some beer and mess around with some riffs and play. And then for the longest time, it was just me, Josh and Dustin, the two guitar players. And it would just be us three in a room once a week, no stress, just kind of chilling, drinking beer, playing. And we just got to a point where we had maybe like two or three songs. And we started thinking about the possibility of just kind of getting them recorded with a buddy who could work his way around pro tools and stuff, just so we could kind of hear back what we were doing. And then, maybe try to find a singer or something. It went on for years like that. I mean, we were just total part-time just playing just for the fun of it. To, again, playing together again, yeah, just to, know. yeah, no, no grand aspirations or anything like that. So our, our buddy, we had a buddy named Matt Benham that was playing bass with us for a little bit. And that just kind of fizzled out. We kind of took a long break from playing and then he just kind of didn't want to do it anymore. So we had a couple songs, we kept playing, and then we went to a Hum and a Failure concert that was here in town, and our buddy Chad, that was the bass player for Satellite Years, was at the show. He lives in Belmont, which is about 
20, 25 minutes down the interstate from Charlotte. So we don't get to see him much, but we ran into him at the show. We were like, hey, do you want to come play bass? We're playing once a week, just nothing big. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Heck yeah, I'll play. So then we had we had the music, you know, we had the, we had the band complete except for the vocalist. Then Josh and I flew to Chicago for a Shiner reunion show. Are you familiar with the band Shiner by any means? Uh, no, really. No. Oh man. Oh God. It's like my favorite rock band ever. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm going to write this down. Yeah. Yeah. Shiner. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm being really long winded. (laughs) Oh, dude, no worries, man. Yeah, this is, this is great. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, so we'll go back. Okay. So we got, we got the instrument players intact. We got two guitar players, a bass player and me. We got playing drums. And me and Josh fly to Chicago to go see real, Shiner re- reunion show. Go ahead. Real quick, though, like, because you said you're looking for singers. Was Jay the first pick, or were you guys just kind of like... I think he's getting to that. Yeah, oh, okay. Come on. Sorry. Don't <laughs> interrupt, <laughs> Justin. Jeez. No, 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 no. That's a good question. I mean, at that point, we had heard that he was doing Sunflowers of Mayhem, and he also lived in Chicago. So we were like, you know, we kind of wanted someone that could come into the practice room with us on a weekly basis and hammer out ideas and stuff but you know we asked a couple people and some things didn't pan out but i i think we all knew deep down that it was always going to be jay we just didn't know how or when to approach him about the idea and how we were going to do it with him being in chicago and so when the shiner reunion show came up and it was in chicago it was kind of like it was a no-brainer that we're that that I was going to go. And I was like, Josh, do you want to go? And he was like, hell yeah. So we flew out there. We stayed with Jay and we were like, when we go up there, let's fill Jay out. Let's take some of these recordings that we have, you know, and, and see if he likes it. Let's see how serious he is about sunflowers and mayhem and how, you know, how much steam they got going. And if he wants to take on another long distance project and whatnot, we'll just, we'll just go. We'll have a good time in Chicago for the weekend. We'll hang out with Jay and, We'll see how it goes. And he was, I mean, he was down immediately. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Had that itch. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So then we're just like, okay, well, we're just going to go back to Charlotte and keep working on music. And we don't know what's going to become of this, but we would just, once we get to a point where we have something recorded, we will just send it to you and you can take your time on it in Chicago and, just record ideas, and if it's cool, maybe we'll just do like a little EP. We'll crowdfund some money and maybe put a little something out. To check out the rest of Josh's interview with Adam Morgan of Hope's Fall, check out the latest episode of Topic Apocalypse today on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and of course on the Humanica Media YouTube channel as well. Coming up next, it's Josh and I talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and did it suffer from sequelitis? We'll share our thoughts on that. It's the PCC Multiverse. What is the Geekly Oddcast? It's a panel show of television. I mean, seriously, where else was I supposed to go and watch Gomez Adams ride a rocket ship on a railroad track? Gaming. And the dice say... 17. Oh my god, 17 is Mystic Quest. And whatever comes to mind. Why does Zod need a starship? Alternating Thursdays on The Geekly Oddcast. If you're tired of sifting through flea markets for rare and unique games, we can help. 
Retro City Games in Henderson, Nevada, only five minutes from the Las Vegas Strip, has all your favorite gaming staples, classics, and a wide selection of rare games with new stuff always appearing on our shelves. Come in and chat with Nicole or Doug about your love of games and watch as they help you complete your collection or find your childhood favorite. And don't forget, Retro City Games loves trade-ins. So if you have any Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega, Xbox, PlayStation, or even PC games, come in and visit Retro City Games today. Welcome to the new metropolis of gaming, Retro City Games. And we're back to close out the show. This is the PCC Multiverse. want to thank you so much for listening to our great show, and we truly appreciate you doing so. Want to thank first Adam Morgan from Hope's Fall for taking the time to interview with Josh for not only this show, but obviously for his upcoming topic apocalypse as well. Rob McCallum, as always, for joining us in the Cosmic Crossfire and Anthony Barbarin breaking down the NBA playoffs as well. Before we head on out, Josh, we're continuing to break down the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Up next, we got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. A movie which you and I didn't particularly care for, for reasons which I know we'll elaborate on. I will say this, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I think, came in with a lot of hype, a lot of promise, and a lot of excitement. But ultimately, after I left the theater, I think it was just suffering from a bad case of sequelitis. The jokes were not hitting on all cylinders. The story certainly was not hitting anywhere near the first one. And it just seemed to me like they were just, in many cases, just going through the motions and trying to continue doing the same thing that they were doing in the outstanding original, but just couldn't get the job done. Your thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and what went wrong? I think a lot went wrong with that movie. One, yeah, they kind of like, oh, hey, the first movie was successful because we had we had a lot of jokes and we were uh, everyone thought it was funny. It was a sleeper hit. And yeah, let's just take the formula for that movie and let's just amplify it for this next one and they relied very heavily on the idea that people were in uh, not in trance but like in love with the character of baby Groot and you know once he kind of wore out his welcome they resorted more to like the Star Lord and Rocket banter between the two of them and then like Gamora's sister just randomly showed up and it seemed like more of a fan service film than anything else. Like I went into it expecting them to elaborate on this big universe, maybe talk a little more about Thanos, but it was just, it's really just a movie that could have been done like honestly, probably in like 30 minutes, you know, with star Lord's dad making a whole movie out of that. I don't think that he was a great villain. I think as far as like world building goes, there's a lot more they could have explored to make the Guardians of the Galaxy to feel like a more complete experience. But I, I, I just, I wasn't impressed with it. And I felt like they were trying too hard to cater to the short attention spans of your typical Marvel film goer. But yeah, man, it was disappointing. I walked out of it, like just tired and feeling that they were kind of beating a dead horse with their, uh, constant need to entertain it had some moments it was funny you know it had it had some cool a few cool things but overall the experience was just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth it was a disappointment for me as well coming off the high that was the original movie guardians of the galaxy was so well done on all platforms it was something that we hadn't seen and something that pretty much a lot of individuals out there that went to go see it weren't expecting and it proved that Marvel can make a hit out of virtually anything. Now, this movie was a colossal hit as far as at the box office. So 
Money-wise, it did outstanding there. But from an aspect of, like you said, a world building, maybe uh, you're going more into detail as far as what we wanted to see out of the Guardians of the Galaxy universe. You're right. It really didn't elaborate that much on what we were hoping to see. Instead of, like you said, it became a lot about can we set up the jokes? Can we connect on the jokes? And also make sure we get the cuteness of baby Groot out there in full force, you know, and then obviously the, the relationship between star Lord and his dad and then Gamora and her sister just really just, I know it, it was obviously something the, they wanted to get the familial theme in there and, and give you the essence of family and, and realize that the real family within the actual structure of it was actually the guardians of the galaxy themselves instead of the, the relationships that was being presented on screen and that the theme was that, Hey, actually if the guardians of the galaxy are staying together, that's the real sense of family. I get that. But to me, it just, it didn't connect probably because like I said, there were a lot of time it seemed devoted on trying to make sure that they connect with the joke and that you made sure that you were trying to laugh before you tried to get anything going with the plot. Obviously with star Lord, everyone's expecting jokes, but, it would have been nice to get a little depth to his character. I know like it was a really sad moment when Ego talked about how he gave Star-Lord's mom cancer, but it seems like there's a lot of opportunities to emotionally connect to these characters, and they just were like, oh, we, people don't want drama in here. That's the thing, though. With Marvel, they're so obsessed with the jokes and the comedy and like the stuff like that that they're missing a lot of really great storytelling opportunities, and you know, granted, they, they do it okay in, uh, you know, Captain America, Iron Man, stuff like that. But it's just like, I see why they do it and I understand why they do it, but I wish that they wouldn't. There's obviously it did well enough that it's going to garner a Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Who's going to be there for it? We're not quite sure because Infinity War 1 and next year's culmination of what will happen in Infinity War with Infinity War Part 2 or whatever it's going to be called well, it's going to tell us who's going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So definitely interested to see that part of it. But I am going to give Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 a chance when it comes out to regain the mojo that it had with that excellent first film. What are your thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Did you think it enhanced the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the way that it was meant to? Or do you think, like us, that it just wasn't something that kept its interest too jokey and didn't quite live up to its predecessor. Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also as well, popculturecosmos, Comedia, and GameSource on Facebook and Twitter as well. Josh, it's been another great episode. Want to make sure and let everybody know next week on the Pop Culture Cosmos show coming in on Monday, we're going to be talking about obviously what happened with the aftermath of this weekend's box office, we're going to be talking a lot about God of War on PS4. Anthony Barbarin will be back with the postseason awards for the NBA. And definitely there's going to be a lot more to talk about as well. But any last thoughts on the way out, my friend? No, I think that's good, man. Yeah, just check out all the great content we got coming out. Also, like if you could please download our podcast, like even if you listen to it in the car, if you download it, that would be a huge help to us just so we can kind of keep track of how many people are listening and that helps us determine you know whether or not we're growing so we'd appreciate it or subscribe to our channels the pop culture cosmos channel super bs games cast topic 
What about this? Anywhere you see it. If you really like our shows and you want to make sure you download it to get all that extra content, just go ahead and subscribe to any one of those channels at any opportunity on Apple Podcasts or on one of our over 30 different podcast networks. So for Josh Peterson, this is Gerald Glassford. It's another beautiful day in paradise here in the PCC Multiverse. We thank you for listening. And here's hoping you have yourself a great day. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Tangent Bound Network. Let your voice be heard. TangentBoundNetwork.com Thanks so much for downloading the Pop Culture Cosmos as a special treat. We're adding a bonus episode, which starts right now. So sit back and relax as you enjoy more awesome goodness from the Pop Culture Cosmos family. And stay tuned as more great podcasts are on the way. Thanks again for listening to us here at the Pop Culture Cosmos. Welcome to the Super BS Games cast. I'm joined here by... I'm Janeman Nordhagen, uh, developer of Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. Awesome, man. So I saw you at E3 last year, and you had a kind of a rough version of the game. What I, I'm just curious, like, what was the... Because I played the game, and it's a really cool game. I, I love the idea. What What was the vision for that? Thanks. Yeah. Um, it sort of started, uh, I was doing a lot of traveling, uh, after gone home and everything like that. Um, uh, the last, last game I shipped and, um, I was trying to think about what I wanted to make next. And out of that kind of traveling around, uh, meeting people, hearing their stories and things like that, I decided that I wanted to try and bring that to game form. Um, and so that's where the the idea of the game kind of originated. Uh, and as you said, like yeah, I was still in uh, even rougher shape, uh, e- even at E three last year. Um, it it took a while to kind of find what how you make a game out of out of traveling and telling stories. Yeah, well, you did. It was interesting because like as as I'm playing it, I'm noticing that you kind of blended. Um... I guess text-based game, a, a text-based game with kind of a, a top-down. I don't want to say adventure, but kind of a, like a top-down style game where you're just moving from place to place. Did was that something like you knew you wanted to do all along, or were you just trying different things and seeing what worked, what didn't? Uh, that was actually something that from very early on uh, I was aiming for. I was kind of trying to think like what what genres of games might lend itself well to this idea, right? Um, so 
you know, Gone Home was sort of like a, a first-person shooter, except you remove the shooting and you just have this storytelling narrative sort of thing going on. And so I was thinking, like, okay, how can I do something like that except really capture this idea of traveling around, like, discovering new places, meeting cool people, stuff like that. And uh, a genre of game that I've always enjoyed was JRPGs. And, uh, you know, like the classic Final Fantasy VII, yeah. Final Fantasy VIII, things like that, they have this, this overworld map, right, where everything is... Uh, visible to you and you can wander around and you get this feeling of like you're crossing continents and all this sort of stuff, except it's, it's way out of scale. It's not like realistic 3d gameplay or anything like that. You're not occupying a real, uh, a real space. And so I thought, you know, that, that feels a lot like what I want. And so what I'm going to do is, is take that concept, except instead of this fantasy land that you're wandering around, it's going to be the United States. Uh, and so you're going to be, roaming this 3d landscape um and then originally the stories you get were like random encounter sort of things you know that would happen to you kind of like enemy attacks in in a jrpg uh and then the the characters were sort of like the the boss battle version of that i guess in in a way and that obviously changed a lot from that original conception but that's where a lot of those ideas came from was you know that kind of trying to fit that that model a little bit i kind of like the idea like what you had in the end product i kind of like that better than the idea of having just random encounters with people because when you first get put onto this map it's huge and it's almost like overwhelming but at the same time because you know when i play video games i got like mad ocd like anytime i'm on assassin's creed game and i see like little dots on the map i gotta go check everything out yeah me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a curse man uh, but with this like you you get out and like i it doesn't feel like i need to go like check everything out but at the same time i i want to like i i as soon as i got done talking to the wolf guy i was out there and, uh, you know, there's buildings to the left, buildings to the right. And I saw that the path was branching off in different directions. And I wanted to explore, like, every inch of this path. But I had to pick one. And that was a really difficult decision for me. But Wow. Yeah, yeah first choice in the game. But, yeah, yeah it's definitely um, – I, I think that in order to give – because part of what I also wanted was this joy of, like, exploration, right? Like, discovering new things and, and everything like that. And because that's an interesting part of traveling. When you're traveling, like, you're doing it to see new stuff, to things that you haven't seen before. And um, so part of that, I think, was giving people destinations and things that they could see on the horizon and say, like, oh, look, there's something – I know something interesting will happen over there. Um, I'm headed there. And – the random encounter thing that we had at one point was frustrating more than anything else because you'd be trying to go someplace and then all of a sudden you'd get like something coming up and it would be like, do I want to engage with this or not? You know, I, I kind of have to, it's interrupting me rather than like me choosing to, to go do this thing right now, um, which I think is a much better model, especially for, for the kind of game we were trying to make. I did. Okay. So this might be a weird question, but did the, when you encounter these people, you go to these different places. You have, I liked the, I liked how you had it. You, they tell a story, and you get to make a decision. Was any of that kind of inspired by those old uh, pick your own adventure novels from the nineties? <laughs> Not exactly that, but definitely like the tradition of uh, interactive fiction kind of games. You know, the very like heavy text based games, things like Eighty Days. I don't know if you've played that. Um, 
uh, Sunless Sea. Like, there's a bunch of cool games that are out right now that that kind of follow that same model, you know. And originally, when I was when I was first uh, starting the game, you know, I wanted it to be pretty easy to make, you know, um, and doing it with text uh, helped a lot with that. Uh, text is cheap and you can iterate it on, it on it quickly and, you know, you can make really compelling stories that way. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of where that comes, comes from. Well, I, it's cool that you made the text sort of like interactive because I'm, uh, I'm playing a game right now on the Nintendo Switch called Lost Sphere and the text just is endless on that game. So like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I think that we definitely found that you need that is like if you're going to be asking the player to read a bunch of stuff, you have to give them some choices through that and some interaction, like some feeling of like participating in the story, not just dumping a whole bunch of, of text in you. Otherwise it becomes like, you know, you're in Skyrim and you pick up one of those books or whatever. And it's just like, why am I sitting here reading a book in a video game? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very good. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, good for them for like crafting their own like mythology within their game I, you know whether or not people actually read it that's another yeah no kidding no i that that game has lore coming out of his ears it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> uh so back to the uh the, the text uh when the one of the first stories i came upon was a guy on a telephone wire and you get to pick whether you want to um keep walking or you can take the bottle that he has on his belt that he left on the ground or something and so i was i don't know like for some reason i thought that if i picked up the bottle because there's a bird around the guy and i thought if i picked up the bottle i was going to throw it at the bird but it ended up i was stealing his booze and he was trying to stop me and he fell off of the telephone wire and that was a moment where i was like oh crap so the choices you make have a legitimate outcome on the characters that the stories are about was yeah. that was that planned? Does that have like a the overarching game? Does that have a big effect on the way things end up? Uh, it doesn't really have an effect on the way things end up. Like as far as your story goes, um, it's more about the stories that you collect. Like that story changes what type it is depending on whether you do that or not, and whether it's a story about death or not you know and uh if you do that and he falls and plummets to his death then you now have a kind of creepy story to tell about this uh this guy you know this lineman this drunken lineman that that fell to his death um and if you don't do that you have a, a different sadder story to tell but yeah that's the way that, that that works out it's really more about the the stories that you get out of it as a character yeah, it was cool because I just I was, you know, from that moment forward, I was trying to be very careful in my my dialogue selections. So that was that was a pretty cool aspect of the game. Oh, um, yeah. One thing that was it was cool, it like stuck out to me. It kind of captured that like Romy feeling was the music. What what can you tell me a little bit about the music and the process of, uh, you know, picking or creating it? Yeah, absolutely. So. The game is very much based on music, like on American roots music, folk and bluegrass and blues and stuff like that. Um, from the very beginning, I knew that that was something that I wanted to bring in there, something I'm I'm interested in. I love music, and I love that, that kind of music. Um, and even the title of the game, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, it comes from a song. It comes from a, a folk song. And um, so bringing in that kind of music was 
really important. Uh, and what we did was uh, I got a composer, uh, his name is Ryan Ike, and um, we worked together uh, to make songs that sound like they are, you know, from that that tradition uh, without actually being, you know, those those folk songs or whatever. But he did an amazing job. One of the coolest things about the the music, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but as you move from place to place, you hear the same song. Uh, it's called Vagrant Song, but it changes its character depending on where you go. So like in the Northeast, it's kind of this Appalachian bluegrass version of the song. In the South, it's more bluesy. Uh, in the Midwest, you get this Midwestern folk. And in the Southwest, it actually like, it uses uh, Spanish lyrics and sort of a, a Mexican American like uh, uh, beat and rhythm behind it and everything like that. And so it's, it, it, it kind of tries to reflect uh, the changing culture and, um, folk roots of each different part of America as you go through there. That's cool because a lot of people don't realize that there is like drastic change from place to place. Like you go just going into like the Midwest, everything is so much different. The dialect of the people, the things that they like, the foods like it, that's, that, that's really cool. I like that. Um, so I'm just curious, like as a, an indie developer like when your game came out were you anxious to see like all the reviews from the different outlets that uh were playing the game oh very much so yeah i mean that's you know that's a big big thing is to see i mean we we spent almost four years making this game and you know it's really terrifying it's like you know you're you're making this thing and you're putting it out there and you're basically telling everyone hey judge me you know like you you contact all these press outlets and you send them press keys and that's all you can do. And like, you're just saying, here's, here's my baby, you know, tell me, tell me how, how beautiful it is. And, uh, and sometimes they think your baby's ugly and that's really hard, you know, getting, getting your stuff judged is, is, is tough. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's like any, any creative project creates this level of like vulnerability in you. And it's, it's hard to have someone not like it, but at the same time, yeah. like, yeah, it's kind of decent feedback. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I mean, for the most part, it's been scoring pretty well. How, does that, how does, how does that feel for you? Like, I know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, not a lot of people know about it. So it's, you know, as word gets out, I, I hope that it sells a lot more because it's a really interesting game. But I mean, for the most part, the feedback that I've read has been pretty positive. How do you feel about that? Yeah. And I think that um, one thing that we kind of knew we were doing from the beginning was making a game that isn't, it's very much not a traditional game. You know, like when people ask me, oh, what genre is it? Like, it's really hard to answer that question. I don't really, I don't really know, you know, um, uh, but we we hoped from the very beginning that it would be a game that would appeal to people who aren't traditional gamers either. You know, people who like their story games, who like uh, hearing stories, who like American history, you know, who like folklore and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so it's been really nice to see that, like, the mainstream press has really, really been into the game. Like, they, they love it. Like, any all the outlets that uh, reviewed it who are not uh, games press really like it. And then the games press is sort of... Uh, uh, divided. It's been really nice to see. Like some people love, love, love the game, which is amazing to see, and and uh, that's fantastic. Uh, other people struggled with it a bit, um, you know, and I think that's absolutely what we expected because it's uh, again, it is a weird game. <laughs> it's not, it's not your normal, uh, normal game. 
Right. Well, I mean, even because the game you your game was on, they're they talking about on IGN and Polygon and like just having any game on those sites that scores above a five is going to get some kind of uh, interest in it. So that's, you know, the, the I guess the, the good thing about those type of websites. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really fantastic. And I'm super glad that we got all of that attention, you know, it was way more than like any indie could reasonably hope to get in this day and age. So that's, it was really gratifying to see that. And I'm, I'm super happy. And I hope that there are more conversations about the game uh, going forward too, you know, not just like the review sort of thing, but people talking about the ideas in the game and engaging with like, what is this game trying to say? What does it mean? Like what, what are these characters doing and you know i mean one of the interesting things about the game is that like we got different people to write each of these different characters right so it's like a collection of short stories in video game form and so i think it's it i i really want to see people look at like is this person saying something slightly different than this person even though they're talking about the same themes you know stuff like that so yeah we'll see that's that's interesting to me i i had read that you guys got a bunch of like uh i don't want to i don't know if they're indie writers or just a bunch of people who like to write to put this project together how what was that process like did you get them all in a room or did you contact them separately and kind of explain the vision were there some re revisions had to be done on some of the stories you received yeah it was definitely a very much a separate thing um we it was uh, i don't know kind of kind of weird actually but i uh i went around and i started asking people that i knew first and then i that i admired their writing and stuff like that and i was like hey do you want to write for this game and once I got a few people like that on board and they had written their characters, I was able to go to other people and ask them, you know, but each, each person wrote totally individually. Like they got to see uh, some of the stuff that, that previous people had, uh, had written, but they didn't, they didn't talk to each other or anything like that, or at least not that I, that I know of. Um, I, I didn't prevent them from talking to each other, but you know, it wasn't like a writer's room or something like that where everyone was working together. It was very much like, I want you to write this character, you know, by by yourself and, and whatever. And yeah, it's a really interesting collection of people. Like there's uh there's a few people who have never written for games before, never written anything much before, who kind of just starting out in their careers and this is their first thing. And then there's um also some folks who are fantastic writers but kind of outside video games and this is their first time into video games and then there's a, a few people who are like video games journalists you know who are uh who have written about games for a long time and are like starting to to get into that like uh people like lee alexander and cara ellison you know who used to be big journalists and are now uh doing their own uh, stories and and so on uh, and then there's like the the actual professional AAA game writers, you know, people like uh, Jolie Menzel and uh, and Anne Tool, you know, who wrote for um, South Park and uh, The Witcher, respectively, you know. So it's like it's a whole spectrum of different kinds of writers uh, working on the game. That's cool because you can kind of like in the stories that you come across in the game are so drastically different from each other. So I thought that was a really cool element of the game did you get any like stories that you had to throw out or you had to change at all um not really most of the character writers did a really spectacular job uh meeting what what happened we had to change everything a bunch just because the game changed so originally like when i when i first started contacting people to to ask them to write this, the way the game played was you had a collection of tarot cards that you gathered over time, you know, by, by having things, you'd sometimes get cards 
from them. And uh, when you were talking to people, what you would do is you would play a card and you would play like, you know, the, the, the devil or something like that. And then the person that would act kind of like a question and the person would then tell you how they felt about, you know, that, that subject. Um, but we actually changed it to in the final game so that you're actually collecting stories and telling those instead. And they fit into the same categories that the cards did, but it's a very different way of, of approaching it. And so we had to add a bunch of stuff for that and revise it, but that wasn't any one that we had to like, there wasn't anything that we had to throw out or anything like that, you know. Um, all the stories got edited, of course. They all got feedback and they, you know, were revised and and so on. But it wasn't uh, everyone turned in great stuff. Yeah. Good, good. Well, I know you did have the um, the tarot cards in the beginning, right? Where you you were picking, uh, you're telling the the wolf guy stories, and you're kind of picking like what type of story it was going to be, and he's telling you all these things. It could be a story about death or a story about uh, luck or whatever. So that you know the was that, did you like the idea and you just wanted to kind of keep it in there? Yeah, it's a really good uh, categorization idea, I think, is like, because tarot cards, they have meaning, but it's sort of an amorphous meaning, right? Like, you know, the the you get the tower card and it can mean like death and destruction and stuff like that. It can also mean like upheaval or sudden change, you know, extreme change. Uh, it can mean uh all sorts of things around that and they all they're all similar but there there's a range of meaning there and so if you have a story and it's a story about death you can file it under there but if it's a story about like big upheaval of some kind like uh, a civil war or you know uh someone even just changing their mind you know extremely or or things like that you can also put that under there so it's a really good device for for categorizing stories which don't often fit into you know nice neat little boxes yeah and that's the cool thing about video games is that it's such a unique medium for storytelling but then you also kind of mixed in uh you know those those types of elements as well as uh, different stories from different people so you kind of like hit the storytelling nail right on the head there thanks yeah i hope so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, so you were talking about the development process a little bit ago. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so uh, it started basically, I mean, it was it was just me. I uh, began the game and I, I sort of started with an idea of what I wanted to do and and some ideas of how it might happen. And I tried some different prototypes for things. The thing that I was really interested in to start with was like, how do you capture telling a story in a game, right? Like the act of sitting around telling stories, like how do you do that? And I came up with a few different ideas for that. Um, And none of them really worked out very well for this game. Like they might've worked out for other games. Um, The one that got the furthest along was sort of like a Mad Libs style prototype where you'd, you'd have adventures and meet people and hear stories. And those would go into sort of like, story component pieces, you know, uh, and and then when you were telling a story, 
if you needed like an adjective or something, all the adjectives that you had, had would be like swirling around there and you'd have to choose one within a certain amount of time. And so you sort of like build this story in real time about like what had been happening to you. And if you waited too long to fill in a word, you'd start saying like um, uh, things like that. And people would like the story less because you were doing it less like, well. Like time it, was really, it was actually really cool. And I'd like to pursue that idea a little bit more later. But what it ended up with is just like Mad Libs, like it ends up with sort of like very goofy sounding stories in the end, right? You, you you just fit in like random things into the slot and the story turns out being like, you know, I, I don't know, I saw a purple hot dog flying in Utah, you know, sort of thing. And like that works for some things, but it didn't work for this game that's supposed to be like sad and deep and, you know, like raise questions about America and things like that. And, and that sort of goofy model didn't work. So what I eventually did was, was sort of just go back to this idea that the storytelling isn't the important part. The gathering stories and the spreading of stories is the important part. So the act of telling, you know, sort of just happens, uh, but the, the, the collecting and everything is the important part. Um, but anyway, going back to development, sorry, got on a little bit of a tangent there, but, uh, uh, the first person that I uh, brought on to help was uh, Kellen Jett, who's the illustrator who kind of like defined the style for the game. So all the the way the characters look, all the um, you know the the sort of very strong black line art, that's all his his style, and um, he really did a fantastic job defining that. Uh, and then I started contacting writers and uh, getting them to write stories. I started, I reached out to Ryan, the composer, and got him on board to write music. Uh, and it kind of all just snowballed from there and grew into this this big, big project that was bigger than I intended it to be when I started. Um, uh, and eventually we, uh, we decided that we'd been getting a lot of feedback that we really wanted, that people really wanted um, voice acting in the game, that they thought that would, that would really sell it, you know. Um, and uh, we couldn't afford to do that on our own. So I started reaching out to publishers and eventually signed a deal with uh, Good Shepherd, who published the game. And uh, they got voice acting to happen. They did uh, QA, um, localization, all this great sort of behind the scenes stuff that you need to have a, have a game work out. The, uh, the preliminary stages before you found a publisher, was it, did you pay for it out of your own money or did you do any crowdfunding for it? How did, how did no, it was just all self-funded. Yep. I just paid for it out of my own, my, my own pocket. Brave man. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> hey, well, I mean it, it, like I said, man, in the end, the, uh, the, the product looks really good. So that's, yeah, I think it turned out really well. I'm, I'm very, very proud of the game. It's a, it's a fantastic achievement. So. So I, I I just um real quick want to ask you about the marketing of the game itself because I know up uh, you're probably up to up to speed on all like the the indie games coming out uh, you know whether on Steam Nintendo Switch Xbox PlayStation there's a lot of indie games there's uh someone was saying there's like 18 indie games being released a week on the Switch what what was the marketing like for your game how did you get it noticed by people or or get the the hype train rolling on that. Yeah, so we were really lucky in that um, we started very early on. We started to get noticed by the press and by um, sort of shows and awards people and things like that. Um, so we, 
actually premiered the before we even really knew exactly what the game was, except that it was about telling stories and these different characters and everything like that. We uh, we did a we were asked to do a premiere trailer at the Game Awards uh, in 2015, I think, is when that actually ended up happening. I think we were asked in 2014, and we, we didn't have it ready. But um, uh, so, you know, we got to show off this awesome teaser trailer of, you know, just show the what the game might feel like, like not what it plays like or anything like that, but just sort of an idea of, like, this is weird, mysterious Americana. We've got the we've got trains. We've got uh, different landscapes. We've got the tarot cards in there. We have this magical transformation thing happening. So we were able to do all that very early on. Uh, stuff like the Games Awards, we got covered by press out of that, and previously, um, and then we started getting up for. We got invited to shows. We got up for various awards. You know, we went to uh, Day of the Devs and South by Southwest and uh, E3, where where we met. Uh, uh, Indiecade. Uh, we got a IGF nomination. You know, like we got all this sort of uh, critical attention, and that really helps boost the profile of a game because you know you get to s start seeing it all over the place in press and and everything. Uh, one other thing that we did, um, which was uh, came from the publisher Good Shepherd, um, is we when we started doing voice acting, uh, we actually somehow got uh, the musician Sting to uh, voice act the game for us. So he's uh, he plays the wolf character, and he's in there doing that, and that's sort of a like that. Obviously, when we when we announced that, that was a really big deal. A lot of press covered that because how could you not it's a very weird thing that a little indie game somehow gets sting who's never been in a video game before to like act in in their game it's a it's a weird interesting thing so that was uh, that was part of the marketing as well um and uh and then other than that you know we did a bunch of like just traditional marketing uh sort of uh advertisements and PR placement stuff and, you know, getting into streamers and YouTubers and, and stuff like that. So, you know, all the, all the things that every game does. Uh, Did you actually get to meet Sting? I didn't, you know, it was, it was sad. What he was, uh, he was actually heading out on tour uh, when we needed the audio done. And so he recorded it, I believe in Italy, like he was in Italy at the time. And I sent him the lines, the script, and he did a recording there and sent it back. And we, you know, sent him some notes and he did pickup lines. And so it was, I never got to meet him face to face, unfortunately, which would have been a lot of fun, but. It's funny because that his, um, was his song Desert Rose, that, that music video is like all about traveling across the country too. It's just. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a good fit, I guess. I don't know. He's uh, he's British. So it's a little weird that he's in this game that's all about America, but you know, it works. He sounds uh, appropriately sinister for the wolf, I think. So. Oh, it was very menacing. I had no idea that was Sting. That's awesome. Yeah. Really cool. The, okay. So you you were talking about Final Fantasy earlier. What what are some of the games that you like to play? Like, what's your what's your gaming background? Yeah. Um, hmm. So I really like uh, big, complicated, systemic games, especially like uh, Dwarf Fortress. I don't know if you know Dwarf Fortress or not, but it's a weird game about managing a fortress full of dwarves. It's all uh, ASCII. Like, it's not. It's all just like 
the dwarves are represented by like little letters or maybe little graphics if you have a patch installed or whatever sort of thing uh, running around. It is like graphically the most simple game you'll ever see, but it will bring your computer to its knees because it simulates all of this stuff down to the, I don't know, every level. Like all the dwarves have their own thoughts and opinions and emotions driving them. And it models like if, uh, if something attacks a dwarf or whatever, it hits them with a sword. Like it figures out like if it hits them on the left arm, like does it just injure their skin or does it go through and injure their flesh or does it like break the bone? Does it cut off the arm? Like it simulates all this stuff for, you know, hundreds of dwarves happening all at the same time, uh, how hungry they are, what kind of food they like to eat, what they dream about at night, what kind of art they make, like all this sort of stuff is all is all simulated. And so it's uh, a really ridiculously complicated game uh, to play and it's a lot of fun. Um, so that sort of thing I like. Uh, I also like, uh, I've been playing a lot of uh, Breath of the Wild right now. Um, I love big open world games like that. I mean, we talked about, Skyrim earlier. I love uh, the whole Elder Scrolls series. I've been, you know, I loved Morrowind back in the day, and you know, played everything since then. Um, Plenty on the Elder Scrolls Online at all? No, I never did. You know, I the only MMOs I ever played were um, I played a lot of uh, Final Fantasy XI. Oh, that was, that was good, man. Yeah, I remember so, that. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, there was there was one other one. What else did I play? I played another MMO. What the heck was it? God, I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, I after the experience of uh, having to I, I don't know give you have to give up a lot of your life to play an MMO in any sort of serious way, and so I I was not as into that. I like single player games where I can you know kind of uh, take it at my own pace. All I do play I like to play things like. Uh, uh, PUBG also and things like that, you know, online online shooters are fun, competitive stuff. Have you gotten into the uh, the mobile games at all of the PUBG or uh, Fortnite? No, I haven't. I haven't even tried them. Like, I have a iPhone 5S, so I'm like a little behind the curve in terms of phone stuff, and I don't. I'm, I it probably would run on that, but I have no idea. I haven't tried it. It's not. I don't game on my phone a whole lot. I don't. Yeah, I just I like my computer, my it's console. <laughs> phone games man not a huge fan but yeah um speaking of consoles so any plans to release uh you probably get this question a lot any plans on releasing your game to xbox playstation nintendo switch maybe yeah so we've definitely like uh uh my background is kind of in console game development and so consoles were on the radar from the moment we began development of this game basically and you know like it's developed with a controller scheme in mind uh, and everything like that so uh it's definitely like in the list of plans it's a sort of a um uh just getting the logistics of it worked out is a little tricky so i don't have any dates or timelines or anything like that but um it's definitely something that we are eager to do yeah, because I was thinking when I was playing it that it would look good and it would be fun on a Nintendo Switch because it's kind of like a book. You take a book with you wherever you go, pick up the Nintendo Switch, and you just kind of play this uh, 
great American novel out on the. Yeah, I think it would be a really great switch fit for the Switch as well, because yeah, you can kind of uh, it's a kind of game where you can pick it up and uh, put it down whenever you want, you know. And uh, there's a lot of it's not an action sort of game, so you don't have to worry about that sort of stuff. Um, it, I think it would work really well for for the Switches. Yeah. And it's well, and you know it's not an action game, but it's still a game that's like it's very like I don't know if I want to say calming, but it's like there's a you don't feel stressed out when playing it. So that's yeah, yep. one of my favorite aspects of it. All right, um, before we, you know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we we have a lot of listeners who are this, uh, you know, this kind of a thing that we do. We have a lot of listeners who are into like game development. So would you have any? Uh, tips or advice for any of those people trying to get into that? Uh, yeah, so normally what I tell, so I come from a programming background, and what I tell people uh, to start out with when they're making their first games is to, like, copy something else, make something super, super simple, uh, make your version of Breakout or Asteroids or Space Invaders or something like that, like, make something really really simple. I've, I made Pong, uh, actually a couple times, uh, in different, in different things because it's a lot harder than you think to just make something like that. And once you have that, you can start doing exciting things with it. Right. But the, a big mistake that I see a lot of people make when they start to make their first games is they're like, and I did this too, honestly, was like, Oh, you know, I want to make a, a giant MMO, you know, this is this is my idea. I've got this idea for, you know, 120 hours of amazing content and it's going to be this fantasy RPG and, you know, all this whatever and, like, you're just biting off way too much because finishing even, like, Pong is going to be really challenging and it's going to teach you a lot. And once you do that, you can, you know, move on to other stuff. But, like, start small, keep things within what you can do and, and just build from there, basically, is what I would tell everybody. It's funny that now you see now that uh, you know indie game like creating them is a lot more accessible than it was before. You see a lot of people who do have these grand plans, like yeah, we're gonna make an RPG. It's gonna be like Elder Scrolls, but better. But then you like you sit down and you're like, okay, well now I understand why they have hundreds of people and it takes ten years for a game to come out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um. All right, cool, man. Well, thanks a lot for uh, sitting down and chatting with me about the game. Do you want to uh, you want to plug it at all before we go? Um, just yeah, tell people they can look at it at uh, where the water tastes like wine dot com or find us on Steam uh, and check it out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool, man. Well, you know it's it's been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, taking the time. To... Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. We'll uh... all right, guys. Well, you will be able to find this uh, interview on iTunes, podcast.com, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and all of your usual podcasting outlets. Until next time.